0: We just ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us. Show us what you'd like us to see from this section of scripture and let your Holy Spirit reign during this meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea chapter 13, starting at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more. And it made themselves molded images of of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it is the work of the craftsmen. They say to themselves, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passes away, as the shaft that is driven with the whirlwind before the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. Yet I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I know, I did know you in the wilderness, in the land of the great drought. According to you, their pastures, so they were filled, and they were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion and as a leopard, By the way, I will observe them. I will meet them as the bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rent the gall of their heart. And there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. All right, we're going to stop there. We have Hosea continuing. And Hosea's whole plan has been to express to Israel, the northern kingdom, that God is bringing judgment. Their answer back so often is, you know, hey, we're being blessed. Look at all the good things going on. You know, there's no troubles. Would you just shut up and leave us alone? <laughs> you know, that's paraphrasing it. But basically, that's what they're saying. You know, just leave us alone. You know, we're, we're rich. You're kind of jealous that we've got stuff and you don't. You know, so just back off. We're, we're happy with where we're at. And so when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel So he said, you know, the northern kingdom was saying, we're great. You know, we're powerful. And they were powerful at various times. They were conquering people. Uh, They were looking good. Everything was going good. And it says, but when he offended in Baal, he died. So when he offended his idol, (laughs) bad things happened. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. When they offended the idol, Satan made sure bad things happened so that it looked like the idol was worship was blessing them but when they offended God because of his mercy and grace and his, his long suffering they're going oh, we're with no problem no problem we're great and this is the the thing about it Satan makes things happen quickly to get people to think that they've done the wrong thing when they've done the right thing God in his mercy allows people enough rope to hang themselves but that makes them think that they're getting away with it for a period of time until the whole, you know, every, their entire life falls apart around them. And so here they are saying all of this. He goes, and now they sin more and more, and have made them molted images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding, all the works of their craftsmen. And they say, let the men that sacrifice kiss the, kiss the calves. So here they are saying, you are making more and more idols. You're sinning more and more. And this is the problem with sin. When we start getting into sin, it demands more. And we give more to sin to the place where, and then we stop even recognizing it as sin and, be, and realize, don't realize that we're getting deeper and deeper into the sin and, and not have a problem with it because we're getting used to it. And God is saying, You've sinned more and more, and you are making idols out of your silver. And this is kind of an interesting thing. And all of it is the work of your craftsmen. And they say, let the men that sacrifice kiss the, the calves. As they, as they were to ki- uh, sacrifice, they were supposed to kiss the idol. OK, so it's actual, physical. Act, actual physical kiss the idol, kind of like kissing the Blarney Stone in, yeah. in Ireland. You know, it's, Supposed to bring luck, supposed to be the fulfillment. So they were to go kiss the idol. Uh, there are some people who say that this was talking about human sacrifice, uh, in that they were to, they, and this would, could very well possibly be part of the worship of Baal was to make human sacrifice. Uh, and human sacrifice was part of most idol worship. And this is the really hard thing. Uh, people were leaving God. Who did not demand human sacrifices to follow idols that demanded human sacrifice. And you know, this is a sad, sad thing. (laughs) When people get deceived, they'll do all kinds of crazy things. And this is what's happening even in our world today. There's people truly believe that there's no absolute absolute truth, so I can do whatever I want. That means, you know. Uh, what, are, what a lot of people do, they sacrifice their children. They call it abortion, but what are they sacrificing them to? My freedom, my desire to do what I want to do. And I've heard people say, well, I can't have a child. You know, we can't have children now because we're having too much fun. And if they get pregnant, you know, and I'm talking about couples that are married. They get pregnant, they, sac- they abort the baby because that baby is going to get in the way. Sacrificing to an idol. This particular idol is my freedom, my fun. And this happens all the time. How many, especially men, sacrifice their family for work? Now, they'll tell themselves they're doing it for their family that they never see. And the family wants them. But I got to go be the top dog in this company so I can make it to the top and make lots of money and you'll have everything you want and we deceive ourselves. It is so easy to deceive ourselves. Somebody who gets into alcoholism, it starts with people saying, well, you'll just feel good with this drink. It'll loosen you up. You won't be be thinking about your problems, and for the first couple of times, that's true. You feel good, you feel it loosens you up, your inhibitions are gone. And before long, though, it takes over your life. And this is the problem of sin. We start in believing the lies, and then the sin overtakes us, and we do more and more sin and don't even recognize that, it, that it's sin after a while. It just is what we do. And so we don't want to stand in judgment of somebody who's in deep sin, because if we'd gone through the same thing, been through the same place, we probably would have been there ourselves. So our job is to love them, to encourage them out of the sin, and maybe tell them, you know, hey, what you're doing is sin. They're not going to like it. They're not going to believe it. But our job is just to tell people that it is sin. And this is whatever it might be. In today's world, telling people that are living together outside of the bonds of marriage that they're committing fornication and that it is sin does not go over very well. They look at you, why are you judging me? I'm going, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what you're doing is sin. God is your judge. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying it. And you know, we need to be able to understand that they fall into this sin. They fall into all of this. And it looks like they're doing right when they're justifying themselves. And if you think about when you found yourself in sin, did you do the same thing? You were justifying it? Very rarely do we go in with our eyes wide open and say, I'm going to do this sin just because I'm going to do this sin. Now, occasionally we'll do that. You know, I, I think the enjoyment of this is going to be better than, you know, than that. But most of the time we enter into the sin and we're trying to justify it. People get into an adulterous relationship and it'll be, well, my spouse hasn't said anything nice to me for three years. And this person is nice. This person actually likes being around me. I just want to hang out around them. And the next thing you know, that, you know, it's adultery. So we need to be careful. We justify things very easily. The northern kingdom people were justifying their sin really easy, even though they were getting deeper and deeper into it. Verse 3 says, Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, as the early dew that passes away, as a shaft driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, as a smoke out of the chimney. Here he's talking about how quick things happen. The dew. Nice and wet in the morning when you first come out when there's dew after 9 10 o'clock when the sun's up you would have never known there was any dew and that's what he's saying it's like the dew that disappears after a period like the smoke out of the chimney you know you can see it out of the chimney you can see it being pushed away and after after just a you know a little while you go where's that smoke it's it's totally been dissipated he goes you know and you know it says as the chaff the chaff thrown you know driven by the wind and if you know how they did it, they would take the wheat, they would throw it up in the air and throw it up in the air. The seeds would fall back down and all the leaf and, and, and stems would get blown away because the wheat was heavier than all the stuff. And they just keep throwing it up until they had just wheat left in the, in the place and the shaft would be blown. Hopefully you didn't live downwind of the, of the threshing floor. Uh, but all of this, he's saying, They shall be like these things. The northern kingdom, when God brings judgment, it comes quickly. And we've seen this over and over, even in our own life. We think we're getting away with something. The next thing you know, we're being judged or chastened, if we want to to use that word. Uh, And it comes quickly. All of a sudden, there it is. In our face, (laughs) this trial that we're facing. And this is what he's saying. You guys think you're getting away with it, but God is going to come quickly, just like the dew, just like the smoke, just like the sh- the, the, the chap. It goes, and you you won't even know that it's there, and there it is. It says, yet I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and you shall know no other God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. So again, he's reminding them, I'm the God that rescued you from Egypt. And we go, well, why is this such a big deal with everybody? Well, because they were slaves. They... Exodus is where they became a nation. So, whenever God wants to remind them, He says, I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. I'm the one that rescued you from slavery. They're entering into sin, which they don't realize is slavery. We need to really understand that if we're bound to anything or anyone that controls us, we are a slave. And we really, honestly, when we read the scriptures, Every single person is a slave. They're either a slave to sin and Satan or they're a slave to God. God's slavery is much better. He's a good master. His, he leads to life. Satan and sin leads to death and destruction. So we have a choice. Who is going to be my master? Sin and destruction or God? I choose God. I like following God. He's a good master. (laughs) He provides me with everything that I need. Don't understand it sometimes, but he provides me with everything that I need. So we look at this, and he says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. One of the greatest celebrations the Jews do every year is Passover. They may not practice anything else, but they practice Passover. Do they still do that? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, It's, it's a big deal for them to practice Passover. Uh, I don't know if they butcher off an entire lamb anymore, but they, they take it. They don't put the blood on the, you know, the walls or everything. But, but during this time, they tell the story of the exodus. And they remind themselves, whether they believe in it or not, it's kind of like a way a lot of people practice Christmas. They'll, you know Most people will read the story of Jesus' birth, whether they believe it or not, uh, and focus a little bit, <laughs> for a few moments anyway, On the reason for it, this is the way the Jews will practice Passover. God delivered us. And they have bitter herbs. They have all kinds of different things that are all part of what God said to do. And they teach their children their heritage. This is what God told us when we were slaves in Egypt. It's been 4,000 years since they were a slave in Egypt, but they keep telling the story to their children. And this is part of what has made them Jewish. They may not know or believe any other story in the Bible. They may not believe and tell any other part of it. But the Passover is a big deal for them. Uh, And so God is saying, I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. And he goes, and there is no savior beside me. God is the only one that will truly rescue us from our sin, and put us into a new creation, a new place, and give us life. And without God, there's nothing. When God took the children of Israel out of Egypt, he fed them every day for 40 years. He provided water in the wilderness from a rock. And it said the rock went with them. Now, I don't know how a rock moved around with them, but it says the rock went with them. And it flowed out enough water to give water to three and a half million people every day that's a pretty good-sized river you now that's not just a little trickle uh, here here's your stream to, to, to coming down the middle of the camp it, you know all three hundred uh, three and a half million of you drink drink from that stream no this was a flowing river that God provided to to feed and, and water his people for for 40 years now if you've ever tried to do feed a large group of people or you know, it takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of moving of, of, uh, of food and buying in the store. And God fed his people every day for 40 years in the wilderness. You know, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. God's provision. And they all had plenty to eat. Nobody starved. Uh, manna was the perfect food. And then when they complained about manna, God gave them quail. And let him have quail for dinner. To have manna for breakfast and lunch and quail for dinner. And he provided quail every night for three and a half million people. That's a lot of quail. That's a lot of people, but that's a lot of quail. Every night, you know, it wasn't just one flock of quail coming in, it was an entire swarm of quail that had to come in to be killed. Because you figure if you look at the quail like we have, you know. Quail might feed one person, maybe two. Yeah. so you need a, a, quail, a quail, you know, a quail for at least every two people. So where did all that quail come from? God. God created it every night. You know, they, they weren't having eggs and hatching new new, where God supernaturally increased their production, but every night He provided quail for three and a half million people. He provided those needs. He says, I am your Savior. I will meet your needs. He goes, and they're basically going, We don't need a Savior. We're happy. And God says, Yeah. And the dew is coming. The smoke is coming. You know, there are going to come a time when you are bound up. And it did. They were taken into captivity by Assyria when they thought everything was going good. And this is the problem with the lost world, especially. Eventually, God brings judgment and basically tries to drive them to their knees. And whatever that takes to get them there. The company folds and they lose their job. Alcohol gets hold of them. Drugs get hold of them. And they find themselves in the gutter. Uh, Your family leaves you. Uh, you You thought you were working for your family. And the next thing you know, you come home and the house is empty because they got tired of waiting. Uh, something crazy happens and wipes out your your savings in your 401k that you are trusting in And you have to spend it to be able to make back Your money all of these things can happen and god is saying i am your savior there is no other savior beside me And we need to really understand that god is our savior even as christians my only hope is in god if our hope is in anything else, we're deceived. Because there's nothing that will stand up when troubles hit, other than God. And we'll find out how shaky the foundation is, how, how much sand we have built our, most of our life on when it's not built on Christ. And it will fall. Been there, done that, seen it happen many times, watched and counseled people where it's happened. Anything not built on Christ will fall, whether it's Christians or the lost. If we try to build on anything other than God's foundation, it will fall apart in, in eventually. And he says, verse 5, I did know you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. So here we have the same thing. He goes, I know you. This is what I'm talking about. He provided water for them. Every day he provided water. They wandered through the wilderness. It doesn't have a whole lot of water in the desert. Even if they found uh, oases, most of the oases were not big enough to handle three and a half million people. You know, they were designed maybe to handle a couple hundred people. You know, there's a a small well there. And three and a half million people every day received enough water to survive. And not just the three and a half million people, their animals needed to be watered as well. Now the animals could eat the, scrub, you know, the scrubs and, and the grass and stuff from the ground, but they still needed water. So you're not just watering three and a half million people, you're watering huge flocks. It had to have a big area too then. It had to be very large. Huge. When they camped, they covered a large area. Three and a half million people. You're thinking some towns, you know, some of the suburbs around Phoenix. You didn't just set up and say, "Okay, here we are. You set up, and it covered the land and made a huge city. It was a moving city. Whenever God said move, they all packed up and moved. Whenever the cloud or the pillar of fire moved, they moved. When he stopped, they stayed. And they stayed as long as he stayed there. So there were times when they would just spend the night and move the next morning. There were times when they spent weeks at the same location. And God moved them at his, at his pleasure. And all of this, he's reminding them, I'm your God, I did, I'm the one that, that took care of you in the wilderness during the drought when there was lack of water. And that was their very first complaint. They crossed the Red Sea And they go, Moses, we need water. We're dying. You brought us out here because there weren't graves in in Egypt. So you brought us out here to be buried in the wilderness. And he found them water. It was bitter. He threw in a, a tree and it was made sweet. And then at Sinai, we start seeing the rock. And all of this was going on. And the people never fully put their trust in God. And, you know, sometimes I look at that and I'm going, how could they not put their trust in God? He sent frogs and, and, and lice and darkness and killed the firstborn and, you know, uh, made the water turn to blood and all these things that he did. And they never truly believed in God. They get to the Red Sea and God splits the Red Sea open and lets them walk across on dry land. And when Pharaoh tries to follow him, he takes the tires off of his, off the chariot so that they're dragging and bouncing around so they couldn't catch him and then lets the Red Sea collapse on Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's entire army was destroyed because he tried to follow Israel when God said, you're not going to touch them. And God is saying, I'm the one that did this. I am that God that did all of this in verse 20 uh, verse 6 says according to their pasture so they were filled they were filled and their heart was exalted therefore they have forgotten me God says according to their pastures they were filled or satiated filled to the to the fill to completeness and he says they were filled again the same word and their heart was exalted therefore they have forgotten me and you going, well, how can anybody look at what God did for them and forget him? It's awfully easy to, when you get the blessings of God, start forgetting that it becomes, that it came from God. And I, I have slipped into that sometimes in my, in my past where everything's going good, everything's being blessed. And I forget that God is God and that God is blessing. And start thinking, well, this is the normal way of living. This is normal. I'm a Christian. This is the way I'm supposed to live. And we have all kinds of pastors and churches that will build onto that for you. The prosperity gospel. You come to Jesus and you're supposed to be wealthy, healthy, and wise. And if you're not, something's wrong with your Christianity. You know what? When I read about what God did to his people, I don't see them all becoming healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, some of them were. Abraham was very wealthy. Solomon was very wealthy. Job was very wealthy. Job also went through a time of of no money and no, no health. In the New Testament, we see all these Christians being martyred. God makes no promise to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. The prosperity gospel is not a valid message. Now, God does want to bless us. God will provide for us quite often. But if we're not being provided for the way we think we should be provided for, does not mean that I'm not a Christian does not mean God's not doing what he said because he could be blessing us in many ways that we're not even aware of. Blessings come so many ways. When we get to see somebody come to Christ that's a blessing and that's not a monetary blessing that's not a health blessing. Now how did I get to where they get get to come to Christ? Maybe I got sick and ended up in the hospital and I had to talk to them while I'm in the hospital and they get saved. Was my going to the hospital worth it to see them get saved? I think so. Uh, I break down on the side of the road and somebody has to help me. And I get to give them the gospel message. Was that breakdown worth it? Even if it cost me hundreds of dollars to get fixed? (laughs) Yes. But we want to be able to understand God's plan is totally different than ours. We want to say, God, I just want to have everything. I'm your child, give me. And there's a lot of people that say that, and they never recognize the spiritual blessings that God has given them. We need to keep our eyes out and say, God, what is it that you're doing for me? I was sore one time with gout for six months, and I'm going, God, I don't understand how this is good at all. About a year later, somebody said, I was so encouraged by watching you serve God, knowing that you were in pain. Now I'm trying harder to serve God. Was my six months of gout worth it? I think so. They were encouraged. Now I didn't think it was worth it at the time it was happening. I knew God had a plan and I didn't understand his plan and I wasn't happy with his plan at that time. But I was holding on to the fact that he had a plan and it was going to be good. How many times do we go through things? I was just very fortunate to have that person tell me. How many times have you been faithful to God during a hard time you have no idea what what impact it had on somebody. Somebody might have gotten saved because they're looking, well, that Christian's not going crazy, you know, and they're going through an awful lot. Maybe their God is somebody I want to follow. We don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll find out all the people that we have touched as we get rewarded for, for, for the touching of them. And we won't know how we were touched and how they were touched. Think back maybe before you got saved. You know, most people have watched a Christian from afar. Does that person really have something that they're, that they're saying they have? How do they behave when everything goes bad? When they hit their hammer with the their thumb with the hammer, what do they say? Are they cursing God and blaspheming God or are they doing something else? You know, and they're watching us. Most people are being watched and they don't even know that they're being watched. If you have told people that you're a Christian, there's people watching you. They're looking to say, is that Christianity thing worth following? And, they, and we might be the only Bible they ever get to read. You know, are we a good Bible or not? We're obviously not perfect. None of us will be. But they really do need to see that we're different. And the comment I get all the time is, why are you smiling all the time? And I don't think I smile all the time, but obviously I smile more than most. And people are going, why are you so happy? And I love that question. Let me tell you why I'm happy. I'm going to tell you all about God. I didn't want to hear about God. You just asked me to tell you about God. You asked me why I'm happy all the time. So I'm going to tell you (laughs) because you asked. (laughs) You may not like the answer, but you asked and You're going to hear the answer. And this is what I've said for us as Christians. We have answers to all of life's problems. The world may not like our answers, but we have them. Why why do bad things happen to good people? Sin, the fall of Adam and Eve. Why do the innocent suffer? Well, technically there's no innocent, but it's the fall of Adam and Eve that caused this problem. And all are sinners, born sinners, and therefore there are no innocents. And that's the first thing they have to understand. There are no innocents. Now, that person's a really good person. Why are they suffering? Well, they're not quite as good as you think they are. Because by God's standard, they're not good. And we just gently give them truth. We gently give them truth over and over again. And they're not going to like it. They're going to (laughs) rebel. They're going to be unhappy. Then he goes on to them. They've forgotten me. He goes, therefore... And we've always said before, whenever you see therefore, you want to remember what is therefore, which is this negative side of things. They've forgotten God. He goes, therefore, I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard. By the by the way I observe them, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rent the gall of their heart and will devour them like a lion and a wild beast shall tear them. This is not a pretty picture. God says, because they have forgotten me, I will be like these very vicious animals. The lion, king of the beast, the powerful one that, that tears things up. The leopard, you can't not run from the leopard, they will chase you down. A bear, a mother bear whose cubs have been taken away. You know, there's nothing worse than any mother <laughs> who, whose children have been taken away. A mother bear. <laughs> Is another problem altogether. They get vicious, and then he goes. It will be again like the lion. Uh, he goes. I will rend their gull, and that's the membrane around the heart and the tissues of the liver and everything. It's the membrane around those. So basically, he's saying I'm ripping your insides out. Uh, and I and will devour like them, like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. This is not a pretty picture of how God deals with people. Says they, you have forgotten me, I am going to tear you up. You're going to wish that you hadn't forgotten me. And yet people will not recognize that it's God bringing these judgments on them. They'll go, what a streak of bad luck I have. Uh, All these bad things, I wish these bad things would stop happening. Yeah, I am an alcoholic and I'm in the gutter and I'm and I don't have a job anymore and I'm begging for the next drink and I'm I'm eating out of the trash can but you know what a streak of bad luck I have. Not God bringing judgment on them, not God trying to get their attention. I just had a long string of bad luck. Not that my sin deserved it. That I deserve it because of my sin, but you know, all these bad things. I was on top of the world and look where I am now. And it's amazing how many people that are coming down and being judged by God all think they were on top of the world before all this stuff happened. It's an amazing thing. You were, you were at the top of your company? I don't think so. You, know, you, were, you were at the top of whatever? I don't think so. But everybody going, I remember when. Life was good. Life was better. Why'd you start drinking then if everything was so good? Oh, I just needed something. Uh, Obviously, it wasn't all that good. We as as human beings have a really big problem. We romanticize the past. We remember the good things of the past, but not the bad things of the past. We'll have a generation like our age saying, remember the 60s. Everything was good back then. And yeah, and everybody was stoned out of their minds and, and... Ended up out of things. Well, let's remember the fifties when the when when it was a great thing to be a teenager, the power of the teenager. Uh huh. There was bad during that time too. No matter where you want to go, we always end up forgetting the bad. I did that even when I first came to to Kingman. I got a restaurant job. I very quickly I, all I remembered was the stuff I liked about the restaurants. I very quickly after a month or two, or even less remembered everything I didn't like about (laughs) restaurant work. But we tend to do this. Well, I remember when everything was good back then. It was all sunshine and roses. There was not a dark cloud anywhere in my life. Well, if you were to go back there, you'd find out there were all kinds of dark clouds and you were wishing for some other period of time. Uh, And hear God saying, "You know, I'm going to send trouble and I'm going to rip things up. I'm going to make things turned around. And he picks all kinds of animals, lions and bears and leopards. (laughs) And saying, I'm going to be able to tear all of this apart. And God does this to the lost to get their attention. He disciplines his children. He doesn't tear us apart, but he disciplines. And the purpose of discipline is to hurt the person enough that they don't want to do it again. All right, And I've seen people they are saying, I'm disciplining my kid. What are you doing? I'm standing them in the corner. Does that, make your, does that make your child hurt? Nope. Okay. Do they like the corner? Seems like it. I don't think that's a very good punishment. I'm giving them a timeout in front of the TV so they can watch their favorite cartoons. I don't think that's a punishment. Hell. You know, So we need to be able to understand punishment has to be something that causes pain. It doesn't have to be physical pain. With one of my kids, they got into trouble early in a week. And I'm saying, you know what? You were going on a date using my car on Friday. You're not using the car. What? uh, uh." No. (laughs) You are now in trouble. You did something that is not right. You're not using the car. That had more impact than any other thing I could have done. So we look at, and people go, well, that's horrible. How could you do that? You ruined their date. I'm not the one that went out and did the wrong thing. You know, so we have to understand God brings discipline into our life, and the discipline will result in pain. Physical, emotional, uh, uh, sociological, you know, whatever it might be, he'll bring something that causes pain. Because he wants us the next time that sin pops up to say, well, last time I had this happen and this happened, do I want that to happen again? No, that hurt a lot. I don't want to do this again. And I'll go on and do some other sin <laughs> that I don't have a, pain, a painful relationship to. But God will do that. Some, he starts out with just an easy chastisement. Look at this. The Bible says a sin. Will you confess? If not, more and more discipline comes along. Just like my dad told me and I told my kids, if you tell me the truth, your discipline will be a lot less than if you lied to me. All right? You lied to me, now you're in trouble for what you did in the first place and the lie. So you're going to get double punished. <laughs> just speak the truth. And the punishment is going to be a lot less. And usually my punishment itself was a lot less if they spoke the truth and just admitted what they did and confessed. It was a lighter punishment. So. God is saying, I'm going to come after you, and I'm going to come after you people in northern kingdom for forgetting me, and I'm going to make sure you know it's me. I am going to tear. Just as we read in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period where God starts pouring out, pouring out the bowl and the seals and the trumpet judgments, and 66% of the population of this world dies, not accepting God many of them cursing God for all the problems. I'm really amazed at how many of the lost will start blaming God for everything bad that happens to them. But they tell you they don't believe in God. You know, I don't believe in God, he has no power, why is is God doing this to me? All this bad, you know, God is just really doing a number on me. Maybe he's trying to get your attention. Why don't you turn to, oh, I don't believe in God. You just said he's causing all these problems. It is amazing to talk to people that are schizophrenic in their thinking because they don't believe in truth. It's sad when I see Christians who are supposed to believe in truth schizophrenic in their, in their, in their, in their thinking. Because it's like just let God get hold of you. Let him get hold of you and bless you and clean your mind out and make it work. And you know I, I love it in colleges because those, most college students are totally schizophrenic in their mindset because they do not believe in absolute truth. Usually within the same sentence, they'll say di- things that are diametrically opposite. And you'll go, which one of those is true? What do you mean? You said this and this. Oh, both of them are true. Yeah. Okay, the sun is out and it's dark. Yeah. Which, tr- which one of those is a true statement?" Both of them. The dark is metaphorical. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and they'll try to justify what, they, what they're saying. They'll try to figure it out. You know, Or it's dark and the light's out, but you know, it's not real light. It's just illumination of truth. And it's like, all right, people, you are <laughs> really good and crazy. So verse 9. O Israel, you have destroyed yourself, but in me is your help. I will be your king where none, where is other, any other that may save you in, in all your cities. And your judges of whom you who said, give me a king or a prince... I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him, and he is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place where the breaking forth of children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. O death, I will. I will be your plagues, O grave, I will be your destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. So here God is saying to them, he goes, O Israel, you have destroyed yourself, but I am your help. Israel, you are headed down the wrong path. You are destroying yourself, but I am here to help. The amazing thing is that God is always there. If we will just open our eyes we'll see God. Now the world does not want to see God in many cases. They just want to keep falling down and and cursing God, blaming God. It's all God's fault that I don't believe in him, but God, it's all your fault. I'm getting deeper and deeper into sin, but I am not going to accept your help. I am falling down a bottomless pit, but God don't reach down and help me. What a scary way to live. And he's saying this, he goes, he goes you asked for a king and I gave him to you And I was angry and I gave him to you this goes all the way back to Samuel Samuel is getting ready is getting old he's getting ready to pass away his kids are rebels they are not godly men and they tell Samuel we want to be like all the other nations we want a king and Samuel is heartbroken. Because what were they saying? God is not worthy of being our king. We want a king like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. What's the problem that we usually have even as Christians? We want to be like the world. God just, I don't care what you say. I want to, I want to be like everybody else. Because when I'm different from everybody else, everybody gives me a hard time. When I go to the party and I don't drink, I get teased. If I don't take a hit on the uh, of the drug, I get teased, and they're going, "What's wrong with you?" Well, I have a good solution. Don't go to the party. All right. If you don't want to be teased, don't go to the party. All right. Uh, You know, at work, I'm honest. I work hard. I've actually had people look at me and say, "Why are you working so hard?" You know, uh, because I'm working for God. Well, no, you're working for the. Yep, no, but I am working for God. He said to give the employer my all. I'm going to give the employer my all. And otherwise we're stealing. And all of this comes down to God saying, I'm here to help you. You wanted a king. You wanted to be like everybody else. I gave you a king. And then he goes, I took your king away from you because <laughs> of Saul's sin. And in you know, verse 12 says, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound in, up. His sin is hidden. And this is kind of an interesting statement. God says, I have bound up the sin, and I have hidden it. And again, this goes to the place he's, I think he's hidden it from himself. Otherwise, he'd be judging them right off the bat. And, you know, this is something that is very important. He's removed it from the deep... Hiding him from his view under the blood of Jesus, basically. Remember that all the sin of the world is underneath the blood of Christ. Why are people judged? Because they're not perfect. They don't have the perfect righteousness of Christ on them. And we've said this over and over. When people stand at the white throne judgment, they're not judged for their sin. They're going to be standing before God in their own righteousness, which Isaiah says is filthy rags. And I can just picture it, you know. I've been a really good guy. I've, I've really, you know, I'm better than everybody I know. And I stand before God ready to defend myself in my wonderful righteousness. And then I look down and realize I'm clothed in filthy, stinking rags. And I'm standing before the highest court there is in all of the universe. And the righteous judge, and I think you're going to really understand at that point what righteousness is because the righteous one will be sitting in front of you. And whenever people saw angels, whenever they saw Jesus, they were struck by how sinful they were. All right? At the white throne judgment, people are going to stand up there and they're going to go, I got this one. Here I am. My sins are not with me. I've got all this good righteousness. And realize they just went to the Supreme Court in rags, thinking that they had gone in there with a nice suit. And they're going to be guilty. And they're going to be found guilty and sentenced to the lake of fire. And here God is saying, your, your sin is bound up. Your sin is hid. You're, you're standing before me in righteousness, which is not good enough. And he says, the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. When we hear this term, it's really talking about how quick the due date comes. You're, you're moving along and the next thing, the, the pregnant woman goes into labor and needs to get to the hospital, or in their case, the midwife, as soon as possible because a baby is coming and you have no warning about it. You go, yeah, you kind of know. It's, it's, you, you know within a few weeks when it should be happening, but you really never know when it's going to happen. And... You know, this happened to us so many times. I'd be at work and get a call. I'm in labor. Yeah, all right, we're headed to the hospital. I'll come and get you or You know, get to the hospital and I'll get right there. Uh, and each time I did, I get called away from work for, for all four of the kids. Uh, you know, you might be at home. You're in bed sleeping. And all of a sudden, time for the baby. This is what God's saying. It comes that quickly. You're going along doing your thing, and the next thing you know, trials and tribulations have come. And all the hardships have come. And then he goes, Andy's an unwise son. He is not taking heed to wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? God's Word. If you really want to have knowledge, true knowledge, you need to be in God's Word. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we need to get into his word, get to know his word and understand true wisdom because it's nowhere else to be found. And he says, their unwise son, they should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of the children. So they're not going to stay where the good things are happening. And you know, this is really what happens so often to the lost world. And even to us as Christians if we're backslidden. Good things happen but they don't satisfy. uh, And even for us as Christians, we go to a great big event and we get on cloud nine. God has been working. Look at all the miracles he did. I just went to a great big retreat, men or women's retreat, whichever. And I'm coming off of a long weekend and I feel really good. And I feel like I can take on the world. Then I go to work Monday and it's like, oh, this is terrible. Where did all those feelings go? We need to be careful because if we build our life on feelings, we have a fleeting life that is washed away all the time. We need to build our life on the truth of God. And this is why I keep saying, you know, when it seems like everything is going wrong in your life, God still has a plan. Romans 8.28 is still true, even when everything seems to be going wrong. And we hold on to the truth. Okay, God, you've got a plan. Don't understand it. Don't know why, I don't know what you're going to do and how you're going to make this good. But I'm going to hold on to your truth. You said it's so for my good. God, you said that you're going to meet all my needs. God, you said you're going to give me a piece that passes all understanding. Look at all this trouble, but I'm going to have a piece that passes understanding. Do we put our trust in his word no matter what the circumstances say to us? Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, after they had been beat, at midnight, are singing hymns and praising God. And you're going, Paul, how could you do that? He's just going to say, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. I don't know why God let us get beat, but we're going to praise God. And then just a couple verses later, there's an earthquake. The doors to the cells open up. The guard comes running in thinking that everybody's escaped. He gets ready to kill himself. And Paul says, we're here. And he gets saved. Was that beating worth it? To see him get saved? But not only he got saved, but his whole family got saved. And we don't know how large his family was. And from his house, a church started. Then the Philippian church started through his house, through him getting saved just before he was going to kill himself because Paul and Silas were singing praises in the dungeon and the earthquake came and they didn't leave. And didn't he go to his house to have dinner? Yeah, well, he went to the house and yeah. he got taken care of, bound up and got saved. You know, was all of the, pra- all the trials worth it? Paul would have said yes. This man got saved. His family got saved. I am glad I was in prison so that I would be at the right place so that he could get saved. Do we have that kind of attitude in our life? God, I am willing to go through anything as long as somebody gets saved from it. The martyrs, you know, did the same thing. They were going, God, just let me be faithful to you so that somebody will see this faithfulness and turn to you. And they would praise God. They would sing praises as they were being burnt to death. They would sing praises as they were on the rack in between their groans and, compl- and cries. Uh, but they would sing praises. They would be following God and saying, God, this is for you. Don't know how you're going to use it, but this is for you. And they would just honor God. Is that our attitude that we will be ready to serve God no matter what? And let him lift us up. Verse 14 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. And O grave, I will be your destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my own eyes. Here he's saying, I am greater than death. I am greater than than, uh, the grave. I love it. The power of God is greater than anything that can come our way. He has a plan for anything that comes our way. Death cannot hold us. The grave will not hold us because Jesus was the first resurrected. When we die, as Paul tells us, we will be present with the Lord. That's a great truth for us as a Christian. All right, God, I'm ready to die. I want to be in your presence. Now I got plans for you still. Okay, <laughs> I guess I'm going to stay here for a little while. I agree with Paul Paul says I long to go to heaven but it is greater and more blessed for you that I stay and teach I'm at that place God I'm ready to go to heaven whenever you're ready for me I'm ready to go to heaven but as long as I can teach I'm ready to teach and help people grow I love it I'm looking forward to the day that I die but while I'm here I'm looking forward to watching people grow and having lives changed. He says, I will ransom you. He will pay the debt that the grave demands. He goes, I will redeem you. I will buy you back. These are strong words that he's using. He goes, I, Northern Kingdom, I'm ready to ransom you. I'm ready to redeem you back to myself to make you mine if you will just turn. And this is God's attitude toward all people. If you will just turn I am standing here ready for you now God knows all things he knows who's going to reject him and who's going to accept him but he still reaches out his hand and says here's your chance one more chance one more chance are you ready to turn I'm going to put you know you're going to die in five minutes I'm going to put another Christian in your way will you accept will you accept the message now they don't know they've got five minutes but God in that last five minutes sends another Christian another message over the radio, whatever it is, but he sends another opportunity for that person to get saved. And he keeps doing this over and over and over again and hoping in the hopes that somebody will finally one day say yes. Now he knows whether they will or not because he knows the beginning from the end, but nobody will be able to stand at the white throne judgment and say, I never had a chance. God's going to say, here, 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 all these places. Oh, you, you you don't you didn't hear that? Well, even before that you knew you were doing wrong when you disobeyed even your own rules. Because we won't even obey our own rules, much less God's rules. And God says, I'm just gonna I'll convict you on your rules. You didn't know my rules, you didn't you don't think my rules are fair? Did you keep your own rules? I will never do such and such. And we find ourselves doing just what we said we'd never do and God said you didn't even keep your own laws you you didn't keep your country's laws you didn't you, you keep your business's laws you, you know he'll point down all the way down the list that we don't keep our keep law period and he says you're guilty you're guilty of my laws you're guilty of your own laws you're guilty of your country's laws you're guilty of your group's laws your, your company's laws you are guilty and he'll come right down the list and say that's it. You, you have no hope. You did not turn to me. This is why it's so beautiful to be saved by grace. To accept Jesus Christ, not by my works, because if I was trying to get saved by my works, I'm in trouble. I've walked with God for 50 years, and I'd still be in trouble if I was trying to get saved by my works, because I don't do a good all the time. It's by grace that he saves us. He holds out the gift. Are we willing to accept it? And he says, I have redeemed you. I bought you back from the slave market of sin through the death of Jesus Christ and his bloodshed. And I am ready to put his righteousness on you so that when you stand before me, you stand in righteousness. So that when we stand before God, we stand in the righteousness of Christ. And he says, well, aren't you the beautiful one? Come on in. You look just like my son. Perfect. Come on into heaven. I have a place for you. My son has been building a home for you. Yeah. And you think about this. You know, I think about this on several occasions uh, you know, every once in a while. God created the world and the universe in seven days. Six days of work and our day of rest. He has been working on our home in heaven for thousands of years what kind of beauty are our suites going to be well people go well he's making it for millions of people he could have spoken them in existence just like he did the world would not have been a problem he is personally creating our rooms what kind of beauty is that going to be I I can't imagine imagine on one side Whatever we imagine, there's going to be nothing compared to what it is. We, know, we might be, you know, maybe you've got a really good imagination and you can really, really think something up, but it's going to be nothing compared to what it is. God himself has been making our future permanent home for thousands of years. And when you look at this world and see the beauty of what he has created in seven days, I can't even... Begin to even comprehend what kind of rooms are we going to have? Well, the whole world for all of time. Yeah. Not thinking. All the way back to Noah and, yeah. and 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 Abel and Seth, all of these generations, and He's built the perfect rooms for every single righteous person that's ever lived, that has accepted His righteousness. It is mind-boggling. And then you think how big the New Jerusalem is, where our homes are. I mean, it's a really small place. It's only 15,000 miles square. Cover half of the United States. And it's 15,000 miles high. That's a lot of room. You can fit a lot of people in there. Even if you make really, really high cathedral ceilings with 15,000 feet up, You've got a lot of floors. And God says, I've got rooms for you. Now, some people might have really small rooms, more like a studio. Some are going to have really large rooms because of the way they honored God and have a whole thing. And we've got to understand when God says he's making mansions for us, it's not the way we think of. Great big building on a a hilltop. A mansion in old English is a suite of rooms. All right, so I enter in my suite of rooms and open up the doors, and there's my living room. Open up another door, and here's my bedrooms on each side. It, it's a suite of rooms. It's not like we think of. I got a, and I love the song. You know, I've got a mansion on just, you know, on on a hilltop, but it's not a valid picture. <laughs> it's not a valid picture of what they're talking about when they say mansions. All of our mansions are going to be in that new heaven and new earth, and there's. Might just be one room. Might be an entire suite of rooms. Maybe I'm really special and I've got a third of, the, third of a floor. I know I'm not that person, but maybe there's somebody who's really, 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 really been serving God, and they're going to have a huge portion of a, of a floor. Yeah. And I kind of do picture it, you know, down to bottom are all the studio apartments. <laughs> you know, you're, you're in heaven. A studio apartment in heaven's better than not being in heaven. You know, yeah. uh, and then, oh. and then it, and then it moves, and then it moves up. You know, and I do picture that. And I could be wrong. You know, there's nothing in the Bible really to talk about that, but, but it does say that all these things are decorated by our works. So, and I know there are people that have done lots of works for Christ, and they deserve. They will get a lot of stuff. And there's some people that, they got saved at the last moment of, you know, of their breath. I don't see them getting a large suite of rooms. <laughs> Like the guy on the cross, you'll meet me in paradise. Yeah. Yeah. We'll give you a one-bedroom place or a, or a studio place, but yeah. but you're in heaven. And I could be totally wrong, but that's my 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 picture of it, and it's worth what it's worth. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because there's nothing in the Bible to say that's true, other than we get rewarded, and our rewards are going to be part of part of our decorations. So No. No. Oh, uh, now most people believe that there are just because we will be rewarded for our good works. But that's our thinking not God's. Decision. Right, and that's the hard part. You know, how do we even conceive of a perfect part. world? How do I conceive of having rewards and not getting proud in heaven of having more rewards than somebody else? And I won't get proud because I have a perfect perfect body that pride is not going to be part of so you know we can't really conceive of anything but what we're used to in this world so we can get some small imagination of what heaven's like we can get some projections and God may just say well you're all equal because you're all saved by grace and I'm decorated your rooms are decorated better with your rewards who knows we don't know anything about it I do believe I do know that we will have jobs and work in heaven because work was created before the fall and man was created to work. So there will be jobs and it'll be the perfect job. And people have said that if you if you have the perfect job, if you like the, you know like what you're doing, you don't work a day in your life. And I've had times when I've liked my I've had three careers and I've had I liked them so much that for at least at the beginning I knew, I wasn't working. I went there and I enjoyed everything I was doing. And it's like, I'm just having fun all day long, and I'm getting paid to have fun. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a job that is just something that we enjoy doing. I would like to be teaching in heaven, because I enjoy teaching. I, I can't think of anything better than to teach. I could teach for eternity. Yeah. So, and I do believe we'll learn in heaven. I don't believe that God's just going to do a core dump and dump everything there is to know into us, because then we'd be God, and we'll never be God. So I believe we'll be learning for all of eternity, which means there has to be teachers. And I know that there's going to be commerce, there's going to be businesses. We look all through the scriptures and it talks about all the commerce coming to the Jerusalem and coming in. So there is some kind of commerce going on. There's some kind of businesses going on. And there's some workers, you know, some workers going on. So what all that does that mean? I have no idea. How does it matter to us? I don't know. I know there are people who like hard labor. They really do. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, There are people who like gardening. I don't like gardening. I kill plants, so I cannot be a gardener in heaven. I don't, because there's no death in heaven and I can't kill the plants. Maybe it's a good place to be a gardener. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, All right, I can't kill these plants. I'm going to be a good gardener here. Uh, But you understand what I'm saying. Gardening to me would be miserable. I can't picture myself gardening and gardening for eternity. But I know there are people that go, that's the best thing in the world, especially if there are no weeds. Yeah. I'd love to be a gardener and a farmer for, for all of eternity. Get my, get my grain and get into, take it to Jerusalem for, 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 the, you know, for, for trade and enjoy life. What will it be like? We don't know. And we, having a fallen nature really have no idea what it will be like to not to live in a world with no fallen nature because this is all we know we know pain and suffering and we as christians know that pain and suffering bring devotion to christ and blessings from christ but in heaven there won't be any pain or suffering and we'll be totally devoted to him now i don't know what that means i have no idea how to do both All I know is there are times when I've been worshiping God where I have felt like I've left this world and standing in the presence of God. And if that is even a taste of what heaven is truly like, I say, let it come. (laughs) I am ready. I can picture, a lot of people go, well, I can't picture standing around worshiping God for, for a long time. I can. I can picture worshiping God for for probably a millennia or two and then go find something else to do because it is so wonderful just to praise him and when we get to heaven and we see all that is we're just going to want to praise him when we stand in his presence we're going to want to praise him you know, we're probably going to want to fall on our face <laughs> uh, before him and praise him and then we'll after a while who knows how long then we'll get up and say okay what else is up here I got God up there who's worthy of all praise and honor. What else is going on? And I heard a message, and I've always been struck by it. The, the pastor was saying he sees heaven as an opportunity to go talk to everybody and hear their testimony about how they got saved. And you know what? I could picture that. Because it is really wonderful to listen to how people got saved. What, how did God get you here? What did he do after you got here? and listen to how God works and everybody is different. So I could picture in heaven, wandering around and, and talking to the millions or billions of people up there. How did you get, tell me about how you got, how, what, what did God do to bring you here? And then go collect another story and go collect another story and go collect another story. Now I hear a lot of people, they all wanna go talk to Moses and Elijah and, and Paul. I think I've shared with you, you know, I want to go talk to people like the widow who gave her last two pennies. I want to know the rest of the story. After you gave that offering, what happened to you? Did you die that night of starvation or did God bring a neighbor to you and give you a huge meal? What exactly happened when you gave the, the, the two pennies? You know, and there are a lot of people in the Bible, I look at them and go, God, what was the rest of the story? What happened to them after that? And I'd like, to, I'd like to know the, the Gadarean that, that had the devils cast out of him. How many people responded as you shared what God did to you? Tell me about it. Tell me about all that God did for you during that period of time. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear the rest of these stories? I'm going to seek those people out. I'm looking for those people that are unsung heroes. After everybody's mobbed Paul and and Elijah and and Moses, I'll go talk to them after everybody's gone to talk to them. But I know a lot about them. The Bible talks about them all over the place. But I might like to talk to Paul. Paul, tell me more about the the jail in Philippi. I know you were praising God, and I know that he got saved. How hard was that? When you were sitting in that rat-infested, lice-infested prison... On dirty straw, what really made you want to worship God? Wouldn't it be fun to hear the rest of these stories? You know, you know really get Moses mad at you. God, Moses, why did you strike that rock the second time? <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't want to do that. Now, he won't have his temper in heaven, <laughs> uh, thankfully. <laughs> but his temper is what got him in trouble. Uh, got him in trouble the first time when he murdered the Egyptian that was beating the Hebrew. Got him in trouble when he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. And you look at all through the, the Exodus story in Deuteronomy, and he's got a pretty hot temper. And his temper gets him in trouble a lot. So, but that's good news. If you have a temper, it's really good news that Moses, one of the greatest prophets of Israel, had a bad temper. Uh, you know, uh, You have trouble with telling the truth? You look at Abraham, who kept lying about... Sarah being, you know, being his wife and saying, oh, she's my sister. All through the Bible, we see these great people that we think are so wonderful and great. And then we see their weaknesses, which is so wonderful because we go, God, if you can use them, there is a hope that you can use me. And we're going to end there and we'll finish this chapter and the last chapter next week. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to help guide us in all that we do. Help us to see... That we need you in all that happens, and that we can focus on you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com.